Hello, dear friends, listeners of the Parsha podcast. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. I'm coming to you live from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. And as a quick reminder, our organization, Torch, we don't have foundations. We don't have membership. We don't charge fees. Our organization spreads Torah throughout the world via our brick and mortar stuff that we have in Houston, Texas. And of course, via the podcasts and the videos disseminated throughout the world. We subsist only on donations from our friends, from our supporters, from our donors, from people who value what we do. We're reaching the end of the year, end of 2019. This was the best year in terms of spreading Torah, of teaching the Jewish people about Judaism, about connecting Jews and Judaism. The best year in our history since our founding in 1998. If you want to support the good work of Torch, if you want to support the Parsha podcast, visit our website, torchweb.org to make a donation. Of course, if you have not yet gotten your Torch Shabbat Light Switch cover, your mitzvah magnets, go to our website as well, torchweb.org, and get some mitzvah magnets. We will ship them to you for free. As usual, my email address is rabbiwilbejima.com. I look forward to hearing from you. This week's Parsha is Parshas Vayetze, and we're going to be following the story of Jacob. And I have something very interesting that I observed from this Parsha. It struck me, and this I've noticed in previous years, but this is the first year that I really studied it. It struck me that throughout the whole Parsha, there are many references to stones. In fact, by my count, there's three episodes revolving around rocks, around stones, and nine verses that discuss stones in one way or the other. So the Parsha begins with Jacob. He is fleeing from his brother Esav. His brother wants to kill him. He's being, he's traveling east to go find a wife from the daughters of Laban. And on the way, he has a very memorable, very dramatic pit stop on the mountain, a temple mount, where he goes to sleep and he has a dream and God appears to him. He sees the ladder that is suspended into heaven and there's angels going up and down and God appears to him, gives him a blessing, tells him he's going to inherit the land. He's going to take care of him. He's going to be with him. A wonderful description of the blessings that the Almighty is giving to Jacob and subsequently Jacob's children. But there's this subplot of the story where Jacob takes stones and he surrounds his head when he goes to sleep. So Jacob's going to sleep in the middle of the night and he surrounds himself with stones. And a few verses later, we see that he wakes up in the morning and those many stones have morphed, have fused into a single stone that Jacob erects as a monument. He pours oil on top of it. And then after God gives him the blessings, he pledges that this stone is going to be the foundation stone upon which the house of God, i.e. the temple, is going to be built. So we have this very interesting story of what happens to Jacob as he's traveling east And the subplot of the story is the change and the multiple stones into one and laying the foundation stone for the temple. Two verses later, Jacob has arrived in the homeland of Laban, his uncle, and before he meets any of his relatives, he goes to the well. And again, we're told that the stone is going to play a prominent role in this story. He gets to the well and behold, there are three flocks of sheep that are lounging, they're loitering by the well. And the reason why they're not drinking from the well, because there's a large stone upon the well. 
And only after all the flots gather and there's a sufficient manpower to remove the stone, only then could you drink the water, could give water to the sheep to drink. And then, of course, they put the stone back upon the well. And Jacob, of course, investigates this. He's like, what are you doing? Why are you sitting around here lounging, doing nothing? And they say, well, we can't do anything until there is enough people to remove the stone. And then Rachel, of course, destined to be Jacob's wife, Rachel, his first cousin, the daughter of Laban, she comes out, she's a shepherdess, and Jacob sees her, and right away he runs and he pushes the stone from upon the well, and he gives water to the flock to the sheep of Laban, his uncle, that's now being taken care of by Rachel, soon to be his wife. Again, we have a very interesting story about what happened on that well, and the stone plays a prominent role. The stone is on top of it. It's a large stone. You got to wait for all the shepherds to come to push the stone off. And then when he sees Rachel, somehow he himself... One man has enough power to remove it, to roll it off as if it was nothing. Again, we see a story in which stones or a large stone is playing a prominent role. And finally, all the way at the end of the Persia, after Jacob already has fathered 12 children, 11 sons and one daughter, he has four wives, he's lived together with Laban for 20 years, and then he hightails out of town and he deceives his father-in-law, his father-in-law slash uncle Laban. He deceives him. He leaves. And Laban, of course, pursues him. And they have this standoff overnight. And eventually there's the confrontation. Laban has a dream. God tells him, don't mess with Jacob. They have the confrontation. Laban accuses Jacob of theft. Laban accuses Jacob of, of, of not treating him properly, of not giving him sufficient notice before he left. And finally, after Jacob responds, they agree to a truce and they make a pact, a covenant, and they cement that covenant with erecting one stone as a monument and then many stones as a pillar to testify to this agreement. This is going to be the DMZ zone. Laban is not going to pass to the west of that and Jacob's not going to pass to the east of that, but also Jacob pledges to take care of Laban's daughters. So what I thought when I encountered this is that it seems like there's a theme throughout the parish, the beginning, the middle, and the end, where this repeating motif of stones are reappearing. I thought maybe, to no pun intended, leave no stone unturned to try to figure out what is going on. Why do we have this repetition of the theme of stones playing such a large role? So I want to speculate broadly that maybe this is hinting at the change that we see in this in this week's parsha of course all the way since the beginning of genesis there's been a a steady mission we're looking for something we have adam of course he messes up and then his children mess up and then noah's generation messes up and then finally it seems like we have something with abraham we have someone who's going to head a nation that's going to fix everything, that's going to complete creation. You know, God created a world and he almost made it perfect and he wants us, our nation or humanity in general, he wants humanity to fix it. And the role of the Jewish people is to be the partners with God to complete creation, to rectify what slightly, what's the slight 
problems, the slight maladies, the slight incompletion, if you will, that is left over from creation, that's our job to be partners with God to complete creation. And we see someone like Abraham, a titanic figure, a great intellect, a great philosopher, a great leader, a great organizer, and he starts something that is going to continue throughout the whole Torah. But Abraham, we see that he's dealing with challenges that ensure that he's not going to be the final leader. Of course, he has his son Isaac, but he also has his son Ishmael and the six sons that he has with Hagar. So there's parts of Abraham and Abraham's story that are not quite yet fully refined to be that nation. And then, of course, his son Isaac, that's his continuation. Part of it's been splintered off. It's gone in the opposite direction with Ishmael and the six other sons, but now there's Isaac. And Isaac, of course, has twins, and the twins couldn't be any different. We have Jacob, of course, he's righteous, and we have Esau, and he's a sinner. So the pursuit of this great nation is not yet completed with Isaac. And in this week's Parsha, we're going to start to see that Jacob, he's going to be the one that's going to be the complete founder or the final founder of this nation, all of his children are going to constitute the tribes of Israel. They're all going to be righteous. And the story of the Jewish people, essentially the nation called Israel, is going to emanate from Jacob completely. And in fact, Jacob in next week's parsha is going to be renamed Israel because he has his individual role as Jacob, but he symbolizes, he personifies the nation in its entirety, the nation of Israel in its entirety, because he is the one in which the role of the patriarchs is going to be perfected. Maybe we can suggest that the founding, essentially, of the nation that's going to take place in this week's Parsha is symbolized with the concept of a stone. Now, the Hebrew word for stone is even. And there's a very interesting Rashi that we find in the end of Genesis Rashi tells us that the word evan, meaning a stone, is a blend, is an amalgamation of two words. Av, which means father, ben, which means son. The idea of continuity, the idea of perpetuation, the idea of a monument, the idea of something lasting is symbolized with a stone. Maybe we can suggest in this week's Parsha, Jacob is founding or is completing the foundation of the Jewish people. Of course, he begins the parasha penniless. He's a fleeing refugee escaping the wrath of Esav. At the end of the parasha, he has 12 children. He is inordinately wealthy. He's built, for the most part, it still has to be continued, actually, parasha. But he's built the foundation upon which the Jewish people are going to descend from. And he starts heading back to Israel, back to Isaac. Moreover, our sages tell us that the challenges of this week's Parsha actually dwarf those of the Egyptian exile, if you will, the Egyptian enslavement that we're going to read about in the book of Exodus. We read in the Haggadah, the Haggadah, of course, we read every Pesach, every Passover, that Laban was a worse villain than Pharaoh. Pharaoh wanted to murder only the Jewish boys, whereas Laban wanted to uproot everything. Thus, in a sense, the challenges depicted in this week's parasha 
were actually greater to the Jewish nation and to what we stand for. They're greater than those of the Egyptian enslavement. So in essence, this Parsha is describing the cornerstones of our nation, what we were built upon, what we had to overcome, what we stand for and what we stand upon. That's being described as Parsha. And almost we could say, just like the Exodus is the founding event of the nation at large, this which Parsha is the founding event of the foundations of the cornerstones of the Jewish people, of Jacob and his family, and therefore, perhaps, again, we're suggesting that there's this repeating motif of stones throughout our Parsha. And I would also add more broadly that, you know, all of us in our own personal lives, we're trying to build ourselves, build our family, build our own spiritual edifices. There are lessons here about founding something great. Of course, Jacob is building something very vast. But each one of us in our own lives are also trying to build something in our family, in our personal lives, and we could take lessons throughout the whole parsha from what Jacob is doing, what he has to overcome, how he navigates very tricky situations. We could take those lessons to how to build our own spiritual edifices. So let's look at these particular stories and maybe try to deduce what lessons we could derive from them. So Jacob arrives on Temple Mount. He's penniless again. He's traveling. He's fleeing from his brother Esav. And he takes some stones and he surrounds himself as a protection ostensibly from dangers overnight. He's by himself and he's going to sleep. Who knows what could happen? Rashi says maybe he's worried of animals attacking him. And he takes some stones and he puts them around his body or his head. Where did he get those stones from? So we find in the commentary something fascinating. On that very same spot... Temple Mount, a few parshas ago, Isaac was bound and was almost sacrificed in the episode of the Binding of Isaac. So, of course, there was a an altar upon which Isaac was bound. An altar, a mizbeach, is comprised of many stones. So the commentators tell us something fascinating. Jacob took those very same stones, those very same stones that constituted the altar for the binding of Isaac, and he used them to encircle himself when he's going to sleep. The first thing we find out in the Parsha is that Jacob is building his edifice upon the great giant antecedents that he had, and specifically upon the self-sacrifice of his antecedents. I think all of us, you know, we are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great giants, the great visionaries, the great titans of our history, when we come to build our own little house, our own little edifice, we're actually coming with the strength of the achievements and the character and the greatness and the deeds of all those that preceded him. And then we find a really interesting midrash. The midrash asks the question, how many stones did Jacob take to surround himself when he went to sleep? And it gives us several different answers. According to one opinion in the Midrash, he took 12 stones. Why? Because he knew prophetically that the Jewish nation was going to contain 12 stones. Some of the commentators add there's 12 months. 12 is a certain completion. There's a certain circuitry of completion with 12, and therefore there's going to be 12 tribes in our nation. And Jacob said to himself, well, Abraham, 
He didn't found those 12 tribes. Isaac didn't found those 12 tribes. Now I'm going to take these 12 stones and I'm going to wait. What's going to happen in the morning? If these 12 stones, they start off disparate, they start off separate. If they're going to fuse together into one, behold, I know that I'm going to found the nation I'm going to father these 12 tribes that are going to unite into one nation. And of course, what happened? They all bound together and he knew at this moment, he's going to be the father of the 12 tribes. That's one opinion. Second opinion of the Midrash is that he took three stones and he said the following. He said, Abraham, he was the one who brought God to the world. Isaac continued that. Am I going to be included in this trilogy, in this triumvirate, in this grand fraternity of people that are going to headline the nation. So he takes these three, am I going to be part of this three? And indeed, those fuse together, and he recognized his role as one of the patriarchs. And finally, the third opinion in the Midrash is that he took two stones, and he said the following, Abraham, he had part of his descendants go off, go awry. Of course, he had Ishmael, he had the sons of Keturah, the sons of Hagar. Isaac, of course, had Esav and all of Esav's descendants. They all had two directions, if you will. Their children, some of them went like this and some of them went like that. I'm going to take these two and find out if I will have any children that will go in different directions or will they all fuse together? Will they all be united? And of course, he wakes up in the morning And he discovers that the stones have merged, they fused, and he knew that he's not going to have any children that go awry, that go on a different path. So it's very interesting here. We see Jacob, he hasn't even met his wives. He hasn't even reached Laban. He's fleeing for his life, and he's already building the nation, and he's already understanding the responsibility that he's going to have to be someone who is one of the patriarchs, but not just one of the patriarchs. He's going to be the prime one, the choicest one. He's going to be the one that has the 12 tribes and not going to have any one of the children go off. And then Rashi adds that what happened overnight, the stones, they started to fight with each other. And each one of them was jostling for control to be the one upon which Jacob is going to be resting. And the Almighty said, okay, we're going to make a miracle and all these stones are going to fuse into one. The commentators tell us that this is emblematic of Jacob's role. He is the uniter of the three patriarchs. And on the more Kabbalistic side, they tell us that Abraham, he was someone that was at the extreme with respect to kindness. He was kind, but almost a little too kind because he was kind even to the wicked, even to the pagans, even to the sinners. He took that maybe to the nth degree a little bit too much. Isaac was the overcorrection. Isaac represented judgment and not only judgment for those who deserve, even too much judgment, even judgment for those who didn't deserve. And then we have this third time is the charm. We have... This wonderful medium, we have Jacob, he's going to unite the good of Abraham and the good of Isaac, and he's going to be right in the middle. He's going to be the perfect blend, and thus he's the choices of the patriarchs, and through him, the nation is perfected. And maybe on a little bit of a deeper level, Abraham, he represents the first temple. Of course, the first temple was destroyed. Isaac represents the second temple. 
the second temple as well, it too was destroyed. And Jacob, he is representative of the third temple, the lasting temple, the eternal temple, and thus he is that unity and that perfection. He is going to perfect the recipe for the nation that lasts. And here we see in our Parsha upon what foundations this is going to be built. Our Parsha is dedicated to depicting the cornerstones of the nation, the nation that lasts, and the temple that lasts. And moreover, our sages tell us that the second temple was destroyed due to infighting amongst the Jewish people, due to factionalism, sectarianism, due to the fact that one nation, one stone, if you will, splintered into many. And Jacob is emblematic of the third temple, may it be rebuilt speedily, That's the temple in which the opposite is going to happen. The many stones are going to morph back into one nation. The nation that was previously divided is once again going to be united under the leadership of Messiah. And the commentaries add, you know, we have these stones. Of course, it's it's very deep. It's very midrashic. It's maybe even a little Kabbalistic. We have 12 stones. And they're fighting. That's what Rashi tells us. They're fighting. Again, it's quoting from the Talmud. Why are the 12 stones fighting? Because each one of them wants to be the stone that's under Jacob's head. And therefore, the Almighty says, okay, we're going to have peace. We're going to have unity. All these stones are going to be morphed into one. Now, the obvious question is, if you have 12 stones and one of them is Jacob's pillow, well, then all the other stones are envious. But how does it solve the problem? Now there's one big stone, but there's still one portion of the stone that is under Jacob's head. So how come there is no envy even after the unity, even after the fusion? And the answer, I think, is that when we realize that we're all part of one team, if we're all this one united stone, if one of us has a little bit more honor and one of us has a little bit less, but we're still the same team, we're still united, then there really is no room for competition or at least the kind of competition that causes people to feel bad. The Ramam tells us that in the times of Messiah, there's going to be a reduction in competition, in the harmful kind of competition, meaning that things are going to be so good vis-a-vis this idea of of Jacob taking multiple stones and bringing them into one, even if one person has a more outsized role and the other person has a little bit of a different role, a smaller role, maybe a more marginal, tangential role, they're not as important to the nation. But so what? If we're on the same team, if we're all united, there is going to be no competition. And there's many examples the commentators add. We know when the tabernacle was built, there, of course, are a lot of components of the tabernacle. But one of the most interesting parts of the tabernacle is what's called the brea chatichon, which means the middle bar, which is this magical, miraculous bar that goes through the beams and turns corners, but it unites the entire tabernacle into one. It's the thing that fastens the various parts together. And the Midrash tells us that Jacob, when he descended to Egypt, he brought with him this middle bar because Jacob is the uniter and therefore the part of the tabernacle that unites everything together, that is Jacob's responsibility. And I think 
another maybe takeaway from this story is that Jacob is thinking for the long term. This is a valuable lesson for all of us, just as parents and as people trying to grow personally, to think long term and to think big picture. Jacob, after he finishes, he wakes up, he takes this stone that morphed into one and he lays it as a foundation stone for the temple. How many years after this episode is the first temple actually built? So according to my math, I may be wrong, but according to my math, it's 743 years from this moment until Solomon builds the first temple on this spot. Jacob is single. He's penniless. He's 77 years old. And what's he thinking about? He's thinking about the temple that's going to be built 743 years hence. He's praying for that moment, and he's installing the first stone upon which the temple, the first temple, and the second temple, and subsequently the third temple will be built. I think that's a very valuable lesson to think big and to think long term. You know, we, I thank God we have children that are all in grade school now, or some of most of them are in grade school now. And the philosophy that I adopted from my teachers, from my parents, from my grandparents is that I don't want my children to peak too early. I want to think long term. My goal in trying to craft a strategy for parenting, for pedagogy, it's to think about what will the child look like when they're 20, when they're 30, not that they should excel in the sixth grade and then maybe peak a little bit too early. And I think Jacob, he's he has a clean slate here. He's single. He doesn't really have anything concrete in the way of building this nation, but he's already thinking all the way into the future to the temple that's going to be built after his descendants are already numbering in the millions and they already have a long and storied history. These are some of the lessons from the first story of the stone in our Parsha. I want to quickly go through some of the other things that I encountered of the other stones and other stories that relate to the stones. So he arrives in Laban's hometown, and it's a very unusual setting. There's three flocks. It seems like there's unnecessary trivia of the story. There's three flocks, and there's the bitch stone upon the well, and all the commentators are trying to unpack what the meaning behind this story is. So the Ramban, he says it's a reference to the three temples, the wellsprings of spiritual greatness are corked up, and three times a year they're uncorked, and then they're covered again. The Kliyakar, he adds that there's three people who met their wives by a well, Isaac and Jacob and Moses, and therefore there's that's hinted by the three flocks and the three partners and every person. And Baal says that the stone, it says the stone twice in this section, it's referring to the two stone tablets that Moses is going to get. Everyone's trying to figure out what exactly is the meaning of this story and the details that seem to be extra to, to the narrative. But it's interesting. We find that Jacob, he gets to the stone and he pushes it over effortlessly. And Rashi tells us that the reason why the Torah needs to tell us that Jacob easily removed the stone, the reason for that is because it's indicating that Jacob is very strong. Even though he had just finished a long journey, you would think he would get weakened from that journey. Still, he was strong enough to easily remove a stone that even three shepherds cannot move on their own. They need to wait for all the shepherds to to arrive. 
So a few interesting things that I saw. First of all, I saw two of the commentators note that it's only after Jacob sees Rachel, only then does he get the strength to uncork the well and to remove, to roll off the stone upon the well. Meaning that there's a certain completion, a certain stage that's being unlocked in Jacob's life once he has this very first touch point with, with Rachel. But the commentators add something very interesting. And again, there, there's a lot of different ways to go with this. But the Talmud tells us that one of the nicknames of the Yetzirah, of the evil inclination, is a stone. The Talmud lists actually seven different names for the evil inclination, and one of them is a stone. It's like we have a stone heart. We have resistance to spirituality. We have a certain dullness of, of sensitivity towards spiritual matters because our heart is like a stone because we have the Sahara. And we see this dynamic in which we have a wellspring, and that's the water, but it's covered over by the stone. We have a certain internal wellspring of spiritual greatness within us. It's just covered over by the Yetzirah. And our job is like Jacob. What Jacob symbolizes over here, we have to push off. We have to remove the blockages to our hearts, the blockages to our connection with God. To the, We have to remove the Yetzirah and let the latent, the inherent holiness that we have within us surface and influence us entirely. And I want to add maybe one more thing from the end of the Parsha. At the end of the Parsha, of course, Jacob has interacted with Laban in a very contentious way. There's lots of tension between those two, and he leaves, and eventually they have a truce. Jacob takes one stone. He tells his children to take many stones. But there's something really interesting about this particular episode. After they finish erecting those stones as a monument between those two, they each give a name to that monument. And Laban calls it Yegar Shahadusa. And Jacob calls it Gal Eid. And the Talmud notes that this is one of the very few places in the Torah where there are different languages, i.e. there are non-Hebrew words in the Torah. Laban is speaking in Aramaic, which is the language of those people in, the, in that time and place. But Jacob is insisting on speaking Hebrew. And the Sephorno tells us that Jacob did not change his language despite the fact that he was surrounded by people who only spoke Aramaic. He maintained his connection. And it's interesting that the identical praise is showered upon the Jewish people when they left Egypt. The Jewish people were surrounded by Egyptians but they maintained their language. I think this is a very valuable lesson. What does it take to build something great? It takes a certain uncompromising stance for what you value. Jacob recognized he comes from, from Isaac. He comes from the land of Israel. He comes from Abraham. He has a very important role. And he's going to be surrounded by Laban, Laban's children, and an environment that is antithetical to what he stands for. And here we see that he survives it. And the Jewish people, as a nation, they go to Egypt, surrounded by all kinds of forces that are antithetical to what they stand for, and they survive. Why do they survive? Because there were certain things that they said, this we're not compromising upon. When we have our values, 
the critical values that get to the heart of what we stand for and we stand by them firm, we're resolute even in the face of tremendous pressure. That is the key. That is the elixir that's going to ensure that we survive tumultuous, chaotic times of upheaval, times of great difficulty, a maelstrom of conflict, of difficulty, of challenge. How do we survive? By staying true to our values and by not yielding an inch on the things that really matter. So again, this is only a selection, a sampling of some of the ideas that we find in our parsha. Of course, the whole parsha in its entirety is the building of the cornerstones of our nation. If we study what Jacob did, if we studied how he navigated how he dealt with these challenges, we too can get a lesson of what it takes to build our own spiritual edifices. May we all be meritorious to take these lessons home and to build not only great people, great families, and to be successors to Jacob's mission, to be contributors towards the building of the third temple, to do our job to bring the world towards its completion. My email address is rabbiwolbajima.com. Again, come to our website, torchweb.org. Get your mitzvah magnets. Get your special torch, Shabbat light switch covers. And of course, be so kind and generous to help support us in our mission to connect Jews and Judaism at torchweb.org. I appreciate it. I value your listenership and your friendship. And I look forward to speaking to you next week.